If you would, please turn your Bibles uh, to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We'll be talking about the wedding at Cana. Uh, We're going through, in the adult Sunday school class, we're going through uh, the life of Jesus Christ in a chronological order. And so, in the Sunday school, we'll be talking about miracles, and today we're going to be looking at Jesus' first miracle for this sermon, starting with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it out to the master of the feast. So they took it and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Hmm, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Weddings. Weddings can be stressful. I remember before Dana and I got married, all throughout our engagement, people would come up to us all the time and say, you know, something on your wedding day is going to go wrong. But you just got to roll with it. And you can still end up having a great day. Well, the wedding day came... And my groomsmen and I showed up early to the church. We had to do last-minute setup of the sanctuary and then also meet the photographer there to take pictures. There was just one problem. Every door to the church was locked. Whoever had locked the door last had no idea there was going to be a wedding on this Saturday. And I'm from out of town. This is Dana's home church, and I don't want to bother her. So I'm calling all these random people on the church's website, elders and deacons, and they're everyone on their pastoral staff and sending them text messages and leaving them messages, begging them to come unlock the door to the church so I can get married. And we, we, we started getting pressed for time. We really did. And uh, eventually my dad is walking around the church for about the third time, making sure that every door was in fact locked and we hadn't missed anything. And he sees our pastor, who's also from out of town, his body is halfway through a window. I'm not kidding. Halfway through a window, he was breaking into the church. And his break-in, his break-in was successful. He unlocked the front door, and the wedding started on time. But needless to say, for a minute there, it was getting stressful. Now, if you're a groom in Cana in the first century, and your wedding is running out of wine, your stress level is off the charts. Your stress level is off the charts. You see, historians tell us that the groom, not the bride, the groom was responsible back then for the wedding reception. 
And that could last for up to a week. Days and days of partying. And running out of wine was one of the most and major embarrassments you could ever have, not just at a wedding, not just the most embarrassing thing that happened in Cana that year. It was the most embarrassing thing that could ever happen to you in your entire life. And there's three cultural reasons why. One is that marriage worked differently back then. It wasn't like you went off to college or you went to a different town or you met someone at your workplace. You started dating them away from their parents and then you got engaged and then you get to know their family better. Asking for someone's hand in marriage was not a mere formality. And part of asking for someone's hand in marriage was actually a financial transaction. A different culture, you have to remember that. The bride's parents in John 2 can actually sue the groom in a court. That happened back then. The justification. This man isn't even able to purchase enough wine for the most important event of his life. How can we trust him to financially support our daughter? Our daughter is not secure in this household. The second thing, Cana and actually the entire Middle East back then, and many parts of the Middle East to this day, operated on a shame culture. You know, we live in a guilt culture. They had a shame culture. Shame cultures work where someone steps out of, outside of the norms of that town's culture. They are ostracized. And shame cultures only work if you bring the hammer down on someone. That if they do, in fact, step outside of those norms, you shame them for their entire life. And so this groom would have been shamed for the rest of his life. And then finally, the third cultural observation, what an awful way to start off your marriage. It's a terrible metaphor. Running out of wine, which represents joy. Running out of joy in your marriage before the wedding is even over. And so this passage, I think, is fascinating. Because when we look at this passage, we see God and the person of Jesus swoop down and save this groom from embarrassment. God has a stake in saving a groom from an embarrassing situation. And from this passage, I think we can learn some broad themes. Even though it's in a small setting, we can learn broad themes about Jesus' plan of redemption. John only gives us seven signs in his entire gospel account of why Jesus is God. This is one of them. And not just that, it's the primary one. It's the first one mentioned. Jesus made a conscious decision that this would be his first miracle. Why? What does it say about our Savior that he thinks he has a stake in ramping up a party? What does it say about us, his people? I think there's three things we can learn about Jesus' plan of redemption in this passage. First, Jesus brings rescue. Jesus rescues. Number two, Jesus brings flourishing. Jesus brings flourishing. And the third one is that Jesus brings hope. Jesus brings hope. So let's talk about how Jesus brings rescue first. 
we don't live in a shame culture anymore. We're not as intense as people were back then. But we understand embarrassment. We understand screwing up socially. When we have parties at our house, we're worried. Will we have enough ice? Will we have enough beer? Will we have enough food? Will everyone be comfortable in our backyard? Or will they need to come inside? Will it feel like the crowd's on top of each other? And that's what Mary, the mother of Jesus, is feeling. She's worried. The fact that Mary and Jesus and Jesus' disciples are all at this wedding means that whoever's getting married is either a very close family friend of Jesus or maybe even a relative. And so Mary sets out to save this groom from embarrassment. And to help her friend, Mary turns to a man who solves a lot of the problems in her life. And that's her oldest son, Jesus. She wants Jesus to help this groom out. So when we read the dialogue, and I'll, I'll reread a little bit of it here. Uh, pay, attention, pay, uh, pay attention with me, please, uh, in verse 3. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. It's a little bit troubling dialogue especially if we picture the iconic Jesus with robes and uh, just being really friendly and nice and always smiling. We can sometimes be maybe a little troubled with this dialogue. But the first thing commentators will point out is that the relationship between Jesus and Mary has changed. And Mary doesn't realize it, and Jesus does. Mary thinks of Jesus as industrious. She thinks of him as a very intelligent guy. But you have to remember, he's never done a miracle before. So she's not asking him to do a miracle. She just thinks he'll be able to figure out how to help this groom out in a pinch. She's saying, son, I need your help over here. Please. Jesus knows the relationship has changed. He's already been baptized. He's begun his ministry. And... The dialogue between him and his mother illustrates all relationships Jesus has had with people pre-ministry into after his ministry has started. Previously, he was just a carpenter. Jesus was known as Mary's son. He was known as his sibling's brother. But Jesus, now that he's been baptized, is going to start asserting himself as God on earth in the flesh. This doesn't mean that Jesus is cold. Remember that Jesus is affectionate to Mary in the gospel account of John, even on the cross, making sure she's taken care of. But it does mean the relationship has changed. He is no longer primarily Mary's son. He is Mary's savior. Just no one realizes that yet. So, another troubling thing. Jesus says, woman. That sounds kind of weird. Woman. But we have to remember that culturally, woman was not a derogatory term. Uh, in uh, Israel at the time. In fact, it's very similar to our term ma'am. Ma'am. Now, that's not the most affectionate thing you can say to your mother, but I'm from the South, and I, a lot of people here are from the South, and a lot of people in the Southwest are taught in manners that if you were in a public setting, I was told I would address my mom as ma'am and my dad as sir. And so even though it's not the most affectionate thing, he's not being rude to Mary. He just initially rebuffs her request. Why? He says, my hour has not yet come. 
Jesus knows that his first miracle is in some ways an inauguration of a new aspect of his ministry that sends him on a trajectory to the cross. He's crossing these boundaries. There's no going back after the baptism. There's no going back after preaching the gospel. There's no going back after calling the disciples. Now there's no going back again after his first miracle. It brings him closer to the reality of why he's on the earth. He understands the gravity of the situation, and Mary does not. But we see Mary's faith. She says, do whatever, uh, do whatever he tells you, and then she presumably just walks off. Ben Coppage uh, is a pastor at uh, RUF at New Mexico State, and I was talking to him uh, this week about this passage, and he pointed out, he said, you know, John blurs certain, detail, certain things in his story that are surprising, and he details certain things in his stories that are surprising. And he does that with the story of the wedding at Cana. Look at what he blurs. It starts out in verse 3. He uses this phrase, when they ran out of wine. When they ran out of wine. Like, it's very sudden. It's very fatalistic and abrupt. We're presented with the problem before we even knew it was a thing. Before we even knew there was potential for them to run out of wine, they've already run out. There's no dramatic or climactic explanation of the last drop and of someone running out. It just says when they ran out of wine. And then also none of the characters are named except Jesus. Mary's not named. Notice she's referred to as the mother of Jesus. There's disciples there. Which ones? We don't know. They're not named. We don't know the name of the master of the feast. We don't know uh, who's getting married, the name of the bride or the groom at maybe one of the more famous weddings of all time. And the point is that everyone, for John except Jesus, is living in a blur, in, in, in kind of mire. It's blurry, it's murky. And the reason is because this wedding reception at Cana represents mankind. It represents us. Because like the groom, we can be an embarrassing sight. We live unfulfilled lives. We sometimes aren't prepared for tragedies and shocks like running out of wine or running out of joy. And you might say, we usually come down on one or two ways. We either say, I've tried to do as best I've could for God. I do the right thing, but I feel empty. Or we say, I don't try to do things for God. I really uh, could care less. I want to experience pleasure. But the problem is the pleasure, pleasure I experience is fleeting, and I feel unsatisfied. We can think our world is murky. We sometimes think we're living maybe in the worst kind of ambiguity. We don't recognize our world as how we know it should be. So where is the rescue in that? And furthermore, where is the rescue in the idea of suffering? If we're going to talk about how Jesus is there to rescue us, to bring us flourishing, and to bring us hope. What about suffering? When you think about suffering, you might think about Eastern Africa or the Middle East. How do you walk into Aleppo, Syria, and tell someone life is a gift from God? How do you explain their suffering to them? Or do you need to walk to Aleppo, Syria? How about this church? Everyone here has experienced suffering or knows someone who has experienced suffering. We just read the prayers of the people. 
We have people in our congregation who are sick, who've had cancer, who are grieving, who are suffering. We, or people we know, are struggling every day with anger, depression, anxiety. These are real problems. Let's be real. This is what actually goes on in all of our lives. How does Jesus bring rescue or flourishing or hope? Doesn't the privilege of life that God gives us lose its luster in the face of suffering and death? These are the questions we have to answer to people. What are you going to tell someone who is just diagnosed with Alzheimer's? Do you quote catechism? The chief end of man is to glorify God. Or do you, uh, what do you say to a parent who just lost their spouse in a car accident and now feels alone? God works out all things for the good of those who love him. The sad truth is that we are all deteriorating. We're all in this together. You know, we're a lot like the wedding at Cana that turns into a disaster. There's, we, there's the good wine that's served first. And then there's the bad wine. And then there's no wine at all, and the party comes to an abrupt end. And that's true of human beings. We experience joy and beauty and flourishing in our younger years. And then as we get old, which we all will, our bodies start to deteriorate. And then there's an end. You know, that's the second law of thermodynamics. That all natural systems always lurch towards a state of entropy, to weakness or withering, and then everything eventually stops. So why is John 2 there? Because everything I just said is true. On this night, at the wedding in Cana, Jesus breaks that cycle. Jesus reverses the curse. He rescues this groom, in a small way, maybe for us, But he rescues this groom nonetheless from social embarrassment, from the shame he would receive, from having a lack of joy in his marriage. He rescues the guests who would have shamed, would have sinned by shaming this groom. He rescues him from that. He rescues Mary, Jesus' mother, from social anxiety. But he rescues us from so much more. He rescues us from sin and death. Jesus enters the feast at Cana just like he enters our lives, unexpected and undeserved. God became man and walked with us, and he showed us the way, and he rescues us. And then he brings flourishing. So remember uh, Ben Coppage's point about what John blurs. Now when we see that Jesus brings flourishing, let's look at what John details. Because he doesn't give a lot of details about how exactly Jesus changed the water into wine or how the wine ran out. But he really wants us to know a lot about the quantity. You know? He said, uh, Jesus in verse 7 commands the servants to draw uh, draw water in six stone jars used for purification. That's 20 to 30 gallons per jar. And if you do the math, which I did, and I'm not a mathematician, but I think I'm right, That's 750 bottles of wine. 750 bottles of wine. Why? Why would Jesus do that? I don't know how big of a town Cana is, 
But let's say a good chunk of the small village showed up uh, and there were 200 people there. They still have a lot of wine to go around. But let's say the wedding was probably more about 75. Everyone would have to drink 10 bottles of wine for them to run out again. And then he also details the quality. The quality. Read between the lines with me in verse 10. The master of feast says to the groom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast is referring to this practice, I guess they had, of getting everyone a little loose on the good wine before they brought out the bad stuff so you wouldn't recognize the poor quality. Do we realize what this might mean about Jesus? Jesus probably gave the best wine ever produced to a group of people that were too intoxicated to appreciate its richness and delicacy. Why did he do this? The quality and quantity of the wine in this passage is fulfilling a verse in the Old Testament, actually. Amos 9.13 Behold, the days are coming when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. Jesus has overwhelmed this wedding reception with joy. Joy is outnumbering everyone else who's there. It's outnumbering the groom's worries that he would become an embarrassment for the rest of his life. Jesus cared about that groom right then and right there. Now bear with me, because this is where we make our turn inward to us. Just as Jesus wanted that wedding reception to flourish, he wanted that groom to flourish. He wants you to flourish right here and right now. Now, we're all sitting in a Presbyterian church. And as such, that might raise the hairs on the back of our necks. Jesus wants us to flourish. We're very skeptical of this idea of the prosperity gospel. That if you simply worship God, you'll be healthy and wealthy. You know, the prosperity gospel preaches that God will give you a great job. God will give you a healthy body. God will give you great friends. God will give you a beautiful family and tons of financial success success, if you simply speak it into existence, if you simply worship God. This false gospel is very popular all around the world because we want all those things and we know there's something wrong with our world. So when I say Jesus wants you to flourish in the here and now, It all depends on your definition of what it means to flourish. Another way of asking this is, what exactly is a good life? If you hop in your car right now and drive to another church five or ten minutes away, the pastor might be telling the congregation that if you worship God, if you speak things into existence, everything will work out for you right here and right now. You will be rich. You will be popular. You will never want for anything. He might tell you, every day of your life will feel like a Friday. 
as one famous prosperity gospel preacher has said. So let's say we leave that church and we go to another one, another five or ten minutes down the road. And the pastor will say something like, the good life is all about personal struggle, of conquering sin through personal fortitude. If you say a set number of prayers, if you attend a set number of services each week, that is the good life. That is what it means to flourish. Then we could drive to a university, talk to a professor who could tell us about one of the most famous ancient philosophers of all time, Socrates. He's a very complex guy, but one of his main arguments boiled down to this. The good life is all about achieving and learning moral virtue. And then that professor, she might tell you about Aristotle, who is like, Socrates is basically correct, but the good life is also about avoiding bad luck. Now you could pull out your smartphone. And the consensus among self-help professionals today, more of our modern philosophies, is that the good life consists of autonomy, personal growth, self-acceptance, discovering your life's purpose, the mastery of a skill, and the mastery of your environment. You might, and you probably should, like the sound of a lot of those things. Some of them aren't bad in and of themselves. Finding your life's purpose, moral virtues, personal fortitude, those are not bad things to have. But those answers might sound hollow to the question, what is the good life? Because they're mere shadows of the real McCoy that we find in the Bible. The Bible talks about the good life as being the Hebrew word shalom, literally defined as peace, but it's a lot more than peace. When we look into how it's used, we see that shalom, the good life, is better defined as completeness, welfare, salvation, and contentment. Shalom is personal satisfaction, strong community. When Jesus turned the water to wine, he was giving everyone at that wedding not just a taste, but a sensory overload of shalom, of flourishing, of abundance, of completeness. When we look at our lives, even lives in which we've suffered greatly, I think we can see how God has allowed us to experience shalom as well. Let me talk to you about one of the moments in my life like that. Before I deployed to Turkey uh, in 2014, Dane and I traveled around the United States. We took two weeks of vacation and visited friends and family. And on one evening, we were in New York, which is a very special place to us. It's where we met and it's where we dated before we got engaged. And a lot of our good friends still live there. And we all met at our favorite takeout restaurant. And we got our favorite meals and then went to the park. And we threw the frisbee and threw the football. We listened to music. We caught up with everyone. The sunset was beautiful. The weather was amazing. And in many ways, that was a moment for us of shalom. 
Everything was there. Strong community with our friends. We had amazing joy. We even did have a bottle of champagne. That was one of our wedding gifts. We had brought it with us to New York, uh, maybe hoping we could use it. We sure, sure enough did. And so it was just an amazing time in a beautiful setting, in a beautiful place. That is human flourishing. Human flourishing is an instance of clarity. Dana's favorite hymn is O Holy Night. And her favorite line in the hymn is when it talks about now that Jesus is here, now that Jesus has been born, the soul felt its worth. The soul felt its worth. That is human flourishing. That is the good life. Flourishing is a soul feeling its worth before a God who calls us his handiwork, his pieces of art. God accepts us as his son and daughters, and it's a realization that that is so much better than our own self-acceptance or in other people's acceptance. And God enters our lives no matter how much we suffer, no matter what we do, because that was a pretty poor excuse for a wedding in Cana, and he entered that too. Now, with that said, it's important to know that life is not one moment of flourishing. And life isn't hopping from lily pad to lily pad of shalom. Shalom comes in moments in this world, just like it did at the wedding in Cana. But until the future, Jesus brings hope. And that's our final point. Jesus brings hope. Now, what is hope? I often confuse the term hope with wish. So when I say, I hope Alabama wins, I'm saying, I sure wish Alabama wins. And that did not work out this year. That's okay. Hope is actually a certainty. We're not saying, I sure wish my belief in Jesus works out in the end. In fact, hope is the certainty of things that have already happened. I hope that Jesus showed us the way in the four Gospels. I hope that he died for my sins. I hope that he rose from the grave. I hope that he ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. Certainty of all those things that have happened. Those are real things. That is an objective place you are placing your trust, as Chuck says. These things have already happened, and we are also just as certain. And we hope that Jesus will return. So what does future hope look like? Well, let's look at it from a rescue angle. Future hope is permanent rescue. It's the full restoration of a broken world. As we get older and our bodies deteriorate, future hope is a new body that we will all receive. We saw Jesus save this groom at a wedding in a moment. But Jesus' permanent rescue is not for two hours or two days or two weeks. Jesus' rescue of us is forever. 
we also saw the suddenness of running out of wine, the surprise. Jesus' permanent rescue in surprises like that. The pit that you feel at the bottom of your stomach when you hear awful news, you've had the wind knocked out of you, that feeling is going away. Our future hope is that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eye and that he'll reverse every aspect of the curse. Now, let's look at future hope from the lens of flourishing. We are constantly tempted to think that this is all there is because this is all we can see. This is all we can feel. And so that leads us down two paths. You can be someone who claws for personal satisfaction, whether that's through money or a lot of friends and relationships, whether that's through power, whether that's living vicariously through someone else. And we can be successful in that. And that will make us empty and disappointed. Or the other option is we can call for those things, power or money or whatever would make us feel complete. And we can even fail and come up short of those dreams. And that will make us feel really empty and really incomplete as well. I beg you not to taste the bitter wine of this world and forsake the best wine that's yet to come. The cross is proof that Jesus was never primarily concerned with situational, personal happiness. We're about to participate in the Lord's Supper where we're going to have a little cup of wine. And Jesus wants us to have that little cup of wine because it reminds us that even though his death was bitter and horrendous for him, it is sweet, meaningful, and perfect for us. We hope in Jesus' rescue of us. We hope in our experience of the good life. We hope that God's perfection will become the reality. And we hope that the cross won't just save us from our sins, but that it clears our world of the minute-to-minute tussle, the minute-to-minute suffering of our lives, the ambiguity, the cloud, the shadows we live in. Our hope will be replaced with a minute-to-minute flourishing and joy in the life to come. And here's the good news about it. None of that depends on you. It's not achievable with good deeds, and you're not forbidden from it if you're like me. You're just a bad person. (laughs) The good news is that none of that depends on our abilities. All good things are assured, because John will later write in one of his epistles, before we loved God also loved us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you today thankful for the hope we have in you. We are hopeful of our rescue. We are thankful that that rescue means in the right here and right now, the chains of sin are away. But Father, as we still suffer, we look to you to allow us respites of shalom, of completeness, 
I pray that you will look over this congregation and give them the shalom that can only come from you. Allow them to flourish. Father, I also pray that no matter what happens to us, you will remind us of the hope we have in your Son. We pray for Herman, especially right now, and the entire family, as they grieve the loss of his mother. And thank you so much for the realization that a memorial service is not all there is. There's a great hope to come. Amen.